So we continue this week um, in the Vessel series where we're studying 2 Corinthians and uh, we're looking at chapter 11 where Paul is going to more or less kind of finish his defense of his ministry by calling out the false teachers um, fully and finally, just really uh, comparing nuts and bolts and uh, showing the difference between his ministry and theirs and pleading with the Corinthians to um, to stop being divided and to once again devote themselves to Christ and to uh, to the teaching that he led them to in the beginning. Um, so maybe you've heard the saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Um, this week, as we talk about discernment, uh, discernment before tolerance, as we talk about uh, discerning the spirits and discerning uh, truth from lies, uh, I, I'm just struck at the, the difficult balance that the church and its leaders have to, to walk as they shepherd people. Um, you know, in this, day, in this day and age, we're just seeing all the time the scandals um, in the evangelical churches, and we know that uh, too much power, when the church leads as the world leads, there's too much power, and we see from the pulpit, we hear guilt and manipulation, and then we see the scandals. Uh, I, of course, remember the Catholic priest scandal um, in the 90s, and then in 2001, I remember my parents having the news on, and there was this story of this guy in, in Atlanta, Georgia, who would take kids aside when he found out about um, sin in their lives and, and have them beaten with belts. And there were uh, people who came forward and said that, they had, they, that he would beat them for up to 30 minutes at a time and that he coerced and intimidated other adults into perpetrating these beatings as well. And so uh, the church can can use fear and manipulation and, and things to to twist up uh, to twist up people about uh, making it to heaven and and uh, and they can assert their power in the wrong kinds of ways. And so uh, the church needs to be really careful to not uh, to not misuse this power and misuse its influence. Um, but at the same time. We must not avoid conflict, and we must not avoid accountability. Uh, we must be willing to confront and love. And um, truthfully, like the easiest thing to do in the name of love is to avoid conflict. Oh, I don't want to hurt them. Uh, I don't. I don't want to cause uh, stress or burden. But at the same time, we're people of the truth, and we are at war with an enemy who is uh, speaking untruth. And so we have to confront in love. Uh, in fact, uh, one example of this, we Paul, after three years in Ephesus, in Acts chapter 20, he, before he leaves, he's giving him this passionate farewell. And in verse 28, he says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. And so he's just pleading them like with them like Jesus did 
with his own disciples, Jesus said, Beware of wolves. They come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Uh, Jesus also, one of the little details that you might pick up in the Gospels, the more you read them, is you see that Jesus is constantly watching over his own disciples and praying. He prays in in John's Gospel um, that God would help him keep the ones that uh, that you that he that the God the Father set aside for him, um, the the Pharisees are accusing the disciples, and Jesus comes to their defense. Uh, there's one particular instance where he's Jesus is teaching a crowd, and then the Pharisees come and start speaking to his disciples on the side, and Jesus stops and turns toward that conversation and asks what they're talking about because he's a shepherd who loves his sheep and is guarding against wolves, and as a shepherd. Uh, myself, I understand that if God's flock is valuable to him, it must be valuable to me. And so uh, I have to think about, and, and the church needs to think about, how um, how do we be careful not to misuse our power and to serve humbly, to, to, be, to lead with a spirit of washing feet, but to also confront lies and to confront sin in love. Um, so now Paul is going to, he's going to kind of model uh, that, that we do confront, uh, that we do call out lies, that we do call out false ideas and false apostles um, and false doctrine. And so let's pick up in 2 Corinthians 11. He says in verse 1 and 2, I hope you will put up with a little of my foolishness. And so he, right off the bat, he's saying, I feel awkward. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm, I feel like I'm about to act like a fool in order to address this. Bear with me. I have to stoop to the level of these false apostles because you're tolerating them. And so I need to speak in in the terms that they're speaking in. Um, So I hope you will put up with a little of my foolishness, but you're already doing that. He's saying you already are putting up with foolishness, so why not me? I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Uh, So Paul is going to make a defense, uh, a final impassioned defense, and really compare uh, who is the true apostle. And, uh, and he declares, I am jealous. I am jealous for you. These false prophets, they have not labored. They have not, uh, they did not give birth to these spiritual children, and they have not labored to raise them. Uh, they haven't borne any fruit. They're just coming in and riding on Paul's coattails. And Paul says, I am jealous for you. And he pictures himself as the father of the bride. If you've ever seen that movie, that's one of my family's all-time favorites. Uh, the father of the bride uh, is de- deals with a range of emotions. Uh, uh, this jealousy, this um, protectiveness, but also this joy and this pride. And Paul says, I am the father of the bride. The bridegroom is Christ. The bridegroom is Christ and the church is his bride. And I'm the father of this church in Corinth. And like a proud dad who's labored to raise a daughter and present her to her groom, pure and unadulterated on her wedding day, uh, I am fiercely jealous for you. There's this beautiful image. Jewish weddings, I'm sure you're familiar, you know, the arrangements, the the marriages in the Middle East were arranged. Um, And you might be familiar with the idea of a dowry, you know, that um, uh, a, a groomsman's family would come and offer a dowry to the bride's family, and uh, there's negotiations that take place, and then ultimately the bride's family will accept, and 
Then this is uh, this is something newer that I've studied recently. Um, from there, there are just kind of two parts to a Jewish wedding from there. So there's this first phase where the bride and the groom spend time in a courtship, a betrothal, where they're getting to know each other and they're spending time together and they're getting to know each other's likes and dislikes and uh, and and just kind of building um, a bond and talking about expectations for marriage and uh, and and dreams and plans and it's it's similar to a courtship um, though the, the the marriage is already in place they're engaged but they're dating it's kind of a kind of different from the way that we do things um, but then from there phase two so after that uh, season ends then the groom goes to make preparations for his household his his new the new household that will form when he uh, marries this bride and uh, agreed upon window of time um, is when the groom will return is uh, planned and but he could he could return any time in the window of time so the bride doesn't know and during that time she is to remain uh, ready to watch for her groom and to be ready to be married all the time to be pure uh, to be washed um, to, to have her wedding clothes ready, to, 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 to be completely ready to enter into that relationship. You may be familiar with the parable of the, of the ten virgins and their lamps, and, and five took enough oil to wait, and five did, there were five who did not take enough oil, and while they were away, the groom returned unannounced, and they didn't make it into the wedding. Uh, that's what that, that, that period that it's referring to. So the groom comes back and then uh, then there's a pra parade. He unites with the bride and there's there's a parade through through the neighborhood or through town and then the wedding occurs and then there's a festival that goes on for days. You may be familiar with Jesus turning the water into wine at the at the wedding in Cana. That's that festival. And so there's a celebration that goes on for days and then ultimately the bride and the groom unite in the marriage chamber and consummate the marriage and that is um, and that that's how a, a Jewish wedding would play out. So you and I, the Corinthian church, Paul says, I'm jealous for you that I might present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And uh, so the church is in this, is, is kind of in both phase one and phase two. We have received from uh, Jesus a dowry, um, the dowry being the forgiveness of our sin eternal and and the promise of eternal life through the resurrection and now we are getting to know him in discipleship we're growing in the scriptures and in prayer and getting to know his likes and dislikes and we're we're working we're we're learning to put on his likes and to put off his dislikes and um to join with him and become one with him and then but we also there he's already said he's he's gone away to prepare a place for us and he is coming again and so uh, we're in this phase two also where we're, we're, we're to be ready. What Paul says is, I want to present you pure as a pure virgin to him. So this, the way to live in this tension is pure-hearted devotion, to be, to be devoted uh, to being ready for uh, the groom to re return. Um, and he's saying to the Corinthians, you've gotten bogged down by these false ideas, these false apostles that taught you uh, works righteousness, and you have devoted yourself now to a legalism, to something other than your groom, Jesus Christ. 
you are following the law instead of following Jesus. Um, and, and we can get bogged down in that too. We get bogged down in works instead of remembering that the price is paid, that Jesus has paid it all. Uh, we can also get bogged down in relativism, which is what Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians, where we see the Corinthian church is blending ideas from Greek philosophy and uh, from their old way of life with their new way of Jesus. And so there's relativism, like uh, sometimes what's right, right for you might might not uh, be right for me. And, um, and people had all these different rights that they wanted to exercise. And Paul addresses the relativism. And we get bogged down in relativism where we're trying to make our own, uh, we devote ourselves to, we divide our attention instead of being pure hearted, devo- pure hearted and devoted to uh, the groom Christ. And then a modern problem uh, is consumerism, where instead of asking what we can do for our church, we're always asking what can our church do for us? And it leads to church hopping and, um, and to division and discord in Christ's body. Um, and, and what Paul is, Paul is saying is, I am jealous for your pure-hearted devotion. I don't want you to follow these false ideas. I want you to discern what's true. I don't want you to follow these false apostles. And I'm jealous, and which makes causes anger to rise in me, and I want to fight for you, and I'm crying for you, and I'm pleading with you. And, and uh, this is a very godly trait. Jealousy, is it, believe it or not, is a godly trait. God says, he is jealous for Israel. He's jealous for his people. Um, jealousy is good when it's well-placed. Uh, jealousy that comes from a place of insecurity and irrational uh, suspicion is not good. But jealousy is good when it's well-placed. And it's well-placed when it seeks to protect the primary relationship of love and marriage from a secondary relationship ruining that primary relationship. And I don't, I'm very secure in my relationship with my wife. I'm not, um, I know she loves me and, um, and, and I'm not worried about, uh, other men infringing on our relationship, but I'll tell you, if I, if I see a man, uh, flirting with her, uh, I'm going to ask the Lord to allow me two minutes in the flesh to take care of that. <laughs> or I might say, vengeance is yours, Lord, but let it come now. Um, because I don't want to let anything interfere with our primary relationship. And so Paul says, I'm jealous. I see that you've let other things horn in on you. And so verse three, he continues, he says, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He says, the false prophets, these false ideas, they're insipid and they come up from underneath you. They're subtle and they're crafty like the serpent was crafty. And uh, he says, if, if someone comes to you, verse 4, and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one that you received before at the beginning, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. So he's being sarcastic here. It's a holy sarcasm. He's saying, it seems like you'll tolerate anything, honestly. I'm just worried that anybody could come along and carry you on to a new belief, and you'd forget who you are in Christ. And so I want to I want to plead with you, church, uh, to ask the Holy Spirit to add discernment to your life. James one verse five says that if any of you lacks wisdom, we should ask the God of wisdom, and He will give 
wisdom to you without finding fault. Uh, discernment is a gift from the Holy Spirit. Uh, he guides our hearts and our minds to help us discern truth um, and to help us avoid dangerous tolerance. See, tolerance is not always a virtue, and that's the title of this lesson, discern before you tolerate. Tolerance can be good when it's patience, patient and gracious, um, when it, when it recognizes uh, the moments to keep quiet, but tolerance for the sake of tolerance so that we can all just do whatever we want is not a good thing. It's not always a virtue. We need discernment to know when to speak up and when to stand for the truth and when to speak out against lies. Uh, tolerance actually can be quite dangerous. I mean, if you tolerate poison, you'll die. Or if you're one of those people who's stubborn about asking for directions, if you tolerate your wrong directions, you're going to be lost. Uh, or if an airline pilot, if you tolerate an airline pilot who says, I'm just going to go in the general direction of Hawaii off one or two or five degrees, by the time you get from Tennessee to the Pacific Ocean, you're going to be way off course and nowhere near the Hawaiian Highlands. You need a, you need a pilot who is going to stay on the straight and narrow. You can't tolerate anything different. In the Corinthians, Paul has been writing them and saying, you've tolerated immorality and now you're tolerating false apostles and false doctrine and false ideas, and I rebuke you for it. He says, like John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Dear friends, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Or you could say many false ideas, false truths, false narratives, false stories have gone out into the world. So we need to pray to, for discernment. We need to ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom and discernment. Mark Twain famously said, a lie can travel around the world while truth is still lacing up her boots. And so we need discernment. We need to be like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. Do you remember what Paul commended them for? Verse 11 says, now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Now, isn't that interesting? Paul the super apostle. He didn't strong arm anyone for this. The Bereans tested uh, The Bereans tested everything he said, and he didn't say, what are you doing checking your Bible? I'm an apostle. It's got to be true. Jesus appeared to me himself, and I'm going to write half the New Testament, don't you know? No, he doesn't do that. He commends them. He says, scripture is your safeguard, and that's what you should be doing, is checking to see, and when you, when you do, you will see that my words align with the truth. Verse five, uh, but I do not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. And it's in parentheses in my Bible. He says, I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge and I have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. So um, some some have thought that maybe when he says super apostles, he's referring to, to James, Peter, James, and John, um, the, the leaders of the Christian church in Jerusalem. Uh, but that doesn't really fit the context here. He, the super, it would seem that the people who are influencing and attacking, influencing the Corinthians and attacking Paul are calling themselves super apostles, something greater than the apostles themselves. Um, it would seem they were touting their rhetoric and Greek reputation along with their authority from the Jewish temple. And so, uh, Paul says, I am not inferior to these so-called super apostles. And he says, I may not have their eloquence 
but I know my theology. I know my theology. In fact, Paul was the prodigious student of Gamaliel, one of three rabbis in the last two centuries uh, who was known as a, a rabbi who taught with authority, which is basically to say they not only had the entire Old Testament memorized, but understood its narratives and stories and themes in a way that when they taught, people said, these guys are different. They're different than any other teacher. They said that about Jesus. Jesus was a teacher with authority. Well, there was this Gamaliel who was a contemporary of Jesus. And uh, you see him in Acts chapter four, speaking up when they are going to, when they're going to try and kill uh, Peter and John and he says, listen, if this is this is of God, we can't stop it. But if it's nothing, it'll die out on its own. And they listen to him. Uh, so Paul is his prodigy uh, before uh, he decides to follow Jesus. Ultimately, we know Gamaliel followed Jesus. And Paul's saying, listen, I know my stuff. I may not be the most, I may be more of a rudimentary Jewish teacher, but I know my stuff. And he says, plus, I've demonstrated this. The only reason that we're talking right now is because of what God did through my teaching and through the spirit that he put in me. The reason that the Corinthian church exists is because of the message and teaching I shared with you. So I have demonstrated to you in every way that my knowledge is is sound. Um, so he he is just at this point where he's, he's not beating around the bush anymore. He's comparing uh, right now apples to apples, truth and lies. He's saying these apostles are false. These ideas are false. I am true. Uh, it may make me sound foolish and boastful, but that's what it's come to. We have to just get this out in the open air. We have to con confront this. And now he's going to deal with another issue. Verse 7, was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. So apparently there was some contentiousness that Paul didn't receive any money from the Corinthian church. And uh, it seems that since he had never been paid for his ministry there, that some felt if he were a real teacher, that they would have wanted to pay him, would have insisted on him being paid, or he wouldn't have lowered himself to do manual labor to support himself. It seems maybe some resented his financial independence of them, uh, like he was too good for them or something. And it also seems, uh, especially when we read verses 10 through 12 here in a second, that Paul is trying to contrast his own scrupulousness concerning being a financial burden with the exploitation practiced by the false apostles. So he says in verse 10, as surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Is it because I do not love you? God knows I do, but I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. So he says they're already boasting about so many things. I'm not now going to allow them to suggest that we are like each other in uh, the way that we take advantage of you financially. No, I'm not going to take a dime from you. Uh, and that is another way, that's another way that you can see that I am here for your good and uh, not to take advantage of you for my own gain. 
And so he, con he, he continues, the words get strong here. Verse 13, he says, These men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. They have a mask on. They have a mask on, and you need discernment to see uh, beneath the mask. And he says, no wonder they're doing this, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising, then, if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. So he says, these are wolves in sheep's clothing. This is what Jesus warned you about. This is what I warned you about. Uh, and, and the truth is, I want to hone in on this idea, Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. See, a false prophet, a false idea, a lie from the enemy is never going to introduce himself that way. It's not going to say, hi, how you doing? I'm a lie from the father of lies. Uh, uh, it's not going to say, I'm an apostate and full of heresy. I would like to deceive you. May I spend 20 minutes with you? Could we sit down and chat? Uh, because, number one, a false prophet doesn't think they're a false prophet. Number two, uh, what they're going to do is they're going to wear a mask. They're going to masquerade as something that they are not. Uh, oftentimes, false prophets or false ideas sound an awful lot like uh, the truth. Praise the Lord, brother. I have a Bible as well. So it's not, grr, I'm a wolf. It's, bah, I'm a sheep. But you need to look underneath the mask. You need discernment to look underneath the mask. In Revelation, the, the false prophet uh, comes as a sheep, but as a dragon underneath. And so you need to ask uh False. You need to you need to look at truth. You need to look at ideas, and you need to look at people uh, purporting ideas and lift up the mask and probe a dip, bit deeper. You need to ask them to define terminology. Um, you need you need to uh, look into um, what's beneath their philosophy. Uh, we have this weird image of the devil. Like when we think of the devil, we think of a goatee and horns and a pitchfork. Uh, for example, the first time I grew facial hair, I just grew a goatee. And this was when I was a youth pastor. One of the teens comes up to me and says, you look like the devil. And I was like, how do you know what the devil looks like? Uh, uh, so he was, in his mind, he was imagining that caricature of the devil, the goatee and the horns and the pitchfork. But here, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And that's because Satan was originally um, the most beautiful angel in all of heaven. And he rebelled against God. And so he masquerades now as light. He's going to look like truth. Uh, his ideas are going to look like truth. They're going to sound good. They're going to make some sense. But what Paul says is, no, they are false. They're like their master, the devil. They come not repulsively, but attractively, but they, uh, they are not servants of righteousness. Their end uh, will be destruction. So be aware. Watch out for these things, okay? And so now he's, he's going to say, how do you know I'm a true apostle? Okay, so verse 16, he says, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, then receive me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. It's kind of like, you know, a comedian acts silly for comedic effect. A uh, comedian um, exaggerates and, and uh, has a particular kind of delivery that uh, highlights the comedy of something. He's saying... Um, Receive me as a fool so that I may do a little boasting. Let me kind of have a platform to be silly and uh, hear, hear what I'm saying. I don't mean this as, uh, as the godly thing to do. In fact, in verse 17, he says, In this self-confident boasting, I'm not talking as the Lord would, but rather as a fool. I'm talking as someone who's lost their mind. I'm talking as someone who's being ridiculous. Um, 
This is not revelation from God, but it's a necessary tactic to set the record straight with these false apostles. And so he continues, verse 18, he says, many are boasting in, in the way the world does, so I too will boast. You gladly put up with these fools since you're so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward or slaps you in the face. I guess to my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. So he's, he's saying these, you're, you think you're so wise, but why are you letting these people take advantage of you and enslave you when Christ has set you free? And uh, I want to tell a story. So I was a part of this Bible study group at one of the churches I interned at in college. And uh, one evening, uh, this new guy shows up and he was not connected to anybody in the group. Uh, he said he just found us online. And uh, it was strange because like the address wasn't listed online and um, so we were all a little wary, but he seemed like a decent enough guy. Uh, but at the end of the Bible study, he stands up and said he has a word of prophecy. And uh, he it, it was clear to all of us he had been eyeing this particularly beautiful young woman in the group all evening. And um, he gave this speech about some of his past and, and, then, uh, and then just talked about how he knew that God had brought him to be a part of this community to redeem his past. And that, uh, that the, word of, the word of prophecy that he had been given was that this young woman is to be my wife. And he said, thus saith the Lord. Because if you say it in the King James Version, it makes it more spiritual. Like, henceforth, uh, she shall be my wife. Uh, you know, um, and we were all kind of stunned, not just because of what he said, but because of what we knew. And she held up her hand and pointed to a wedding ring on her ring finger of her left hand uh, and said, I'm already married. And he, you know, at first he, he was caught off guard and kind of stumbled over his words. But then he said, well, then you've disobeyed the Lord. And um, at that point, the pastor immediately told him to sit down. Uh, he said the, that uh, it's clear that this is not a word from the Lord because the word the Lord is not uh, device, is not confusing. Um, and this is confusing that someone would say they, the Lord spoke to them to marry a already married person, uh, that he clearly did not have insight from the spirit. And the young man proceeded to argue and said that, accused the pastor of not uh, shepherding his group, that he let this woman marry and sin. And so the pastor dismissed him, escorted him outside and came back and shared with the group and said that this young man has been advised that we would love to love him, but uh, that he would need to remain silent in meetings until uh, until he learned to, until the group learned to trust him and um, that he would have to meet with the pastor before participating again. He was basically saying, I'm looking out for the, the well-being of, your, of this group. You are my sheep and I want to make sure you feel safe. And Paul said, I'm, I want to make sure there's no abuse that enters this group. And Paul is saying to the, to the Corinthians, you have a, you're allowing yourself to be enslaved to ideas and laws uh, you're allowing yourself to be enslaved to the things that you were once already enslaved to and Christ set you free from just because these people came in and said that you needed to believe something else. They're throwing you into bondage and they're exploiting you and they're taking advantage of you for their own profit and fame. And the message I brought was different. I was too weak to take use, to, to take advantage of you for my own benefit. Uh, I, I was too weak to to seek profit from you and too weak to uh, to gloat about about my reputation. Uh, and so he's being, he's acting a fool. He's being sarcastic and comparing these things, but he's also 
pleading with them. Do you not see how you're being taken advantage of uh, because you're not seeking the Lord for discernment? Your heart is just uh, being tossed back and forth by the wind. Um, and so he, he says, here are my boasts. Here are my credentials. Uh, verse 22, he says, are they Hebrews? Uh, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. So first of all, they must be coming and saying, we have the authority of the temple. We've known God much longer. They're, they're what the scripture calls Judaizers. And Paul's saying, well, so what? I'm a PhD in biblical studies from Jerusalem U, okay? Like uh, any, any credentials they have from the temple, I have more. And then he continues, and this is where it gets interesting. Verse 23, he says, are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this, but I am more. I have worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. He says, my credentials are my scars. So don't tell me what seminary you graduated from. How's your walk with Christ? What's your fruit? What battles have shaped you? What trials have forged your character? What sacrifices have you made? How's your prayer life? How's your wife and children? Are you, are you a person of integrity? What are you willing to endure for Christ? He's saying, my credentials are my scars, my uh, laying down of my life, because that's what my Savior did. That's his credentials. When, when Thomas said, I need proof, uh, let me touch your scars. Jesus held out his hands, and those were his credentials. Those were his credentials to be Lord and to be Savior. And Thomas immediately bowed upon feeling his wounds. Um, and that's what Paul, Paul says similarly. Don't, don't you know my life? You know, you know everything that I've been through. And then he says on top of this, beside everything else, verse 28, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. He's, his heart is burdened for the health and spiritual growth of the church. And um, when they struggle, he struggles. And when they succeed, he rejoices. And uh, he feels what they're feeling. Verse 29, who is weak and I don't feel weak? Who's led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? He feels personally responsible for each person. That's a true mark of a shepherd. He's with the sheep. In verse 30, he says, if I must boast, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I'm not lying. And then verse 32, it's like he forgot something. He said, oh, by the way, one more thing. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. And so he adds one more to the to his list of scars. Um, but he says, I will boast of the things that show my weakness because that's what my Lord boasted of. And he is, he is my witness. He is my witness to my heart and my passion for you. And so I plead with you, don't listen to these false ideas anymore. Have discernment. Look beneath the mask. And so about that, testing the spirits, 1 John 4, 1. Uh, three tests that you can 
uh, that you can use to test the spirits. First of all, a test of character. You ask yourself, do, do they have the fruit of the Spirit? Does this idea lead me uh, to the fruit of the Spirit? And the fruit, uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's a test of character. Skip Skip Heitzig says, the fruit of the Spirit is the character of Christ, formed by the Spirit of Christ, and a follower of Christ. And so uh, if you're going to discern the spirits, look for that. Look for the, the, the character of Christ formed by the Spirit of Christ and a follower of Christ. Look for love and joy. Look for peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Does that idea bring more of those things into the world? Does that, does that person exude more of that character and inspire others to that character? So test, that's a test of character. Number two, a test of creed. What do they say about Jesus? What is that idea? How does that idea point to Jesus? What do they say is the way to salvation? Any answer to to that to to the way of salvation other than Jesus is an immediate fail of the test. Jesus said, "I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except by me." And so, who do they say Jesus is? Um, someone comes to the door. They have a spiel. Just cut to the quick and say, tell me who Jesus is. Is he God in human flesh? Is he the second person of the Trinity? Is he, was he sent to this earth to rescue us from sin through his death on the cross? Uh, did he raise us to new life by the power of his bodily resurrection on the third day, by which there is no other way to God? And who, is, he, who, is he coming again to bodily resurrect us from the dead? Uh, any other answer, uh, they fail the test. See, Jesus said, Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the gate that leads to life. False prophets are broadening the road. They are broadening the gate. They are uh, adding works to the means of righteousness. They are uh, mixing relative ideas with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, They are making uh, the faith about their own benefit and what they can consume. False prophets are broadening the gate. Jesus is the narrow gate that leads to life. So test the creed. And then lastly, uh, do a test of the converts. Uh, Look at the lives of the people that follow their system. If what they believe makes them more like Jesus and leads others to the same, then you can see truth within that. But if if, uh, A.W. Tozer, he he said, um, I don't want to hear the numbers of a man, I don't want. I don't want to know how big his church is. Let me be a fly on the wall to observe a man's prayer life, and uh, then I will know the metal of his soul. Uh, that's that's the test of converts to know uh, what whether or not that system is truly yielding the best way to live. So, um, in closing, just want to encourage you. We, we need to dig in the scriptures, pray for discernment, and look under the masks uh, to make sure that we're following the truth. Test the spirits. Uh, check the scriptures. Pray for wisdom and discernment. Uh, Heavenly Father, we just thank you in Jesus' name for your word. You're so good. And uh, we pray for wisdom. We ask, Lord, that you would give us wisdom to discern the spirits of the world around us, um, to stand for the truth, uh, to walk uh, delicately the balance of Um, serving humbly while also um, confronting lies. Uh, We love you and we thank you for this word in Jesus' name.